So today we're going to talk quite a bit about our conduct, conduct, and um, specifically our conduct as elect exiles. That's where Peter's going to take us. But as we approach the text, I, I want to make sure that I remind us of a major principle of grace as we get into this conversation. We need to be reminded that God's saving power is present in our conduct. The grace of God, his saving power, is present in our conduct. The same grace that declares us righteous before God is the same grace that is at work in us, transforming us into what we have been declared to be. It's important. The same grace and work of God in our life that saves us, justifies us before God, declares us right before him, is the same grace, the same power, the same work of God in our life, transforming our conduct. We, we're familiar with Ephesians 2, verse 8, for by grace you have been saved, through faith. And this is not of your own doing. It is a gift of God. We recognize that. But sometimes in the church, we are tempted to then define faith however we want. And that becomes our problem. That's not a new problem. We find the authors in the New Testament writing about that tension. Probably most notably James, who asked the question, what good is it, my brothers? If someone says he has faith, but does not have works, can that faith save him? So also, faith by itself, if it does not have works, James says, is dead. It's dead. See, last week, our big truth was as elect exiles, we set our hope on a future grace. This week, as elect exiles, we conduct ourselves with fear. In other words, our faith has implications on our behavior. The grace of God that saves us is at work in us, transforming how we live. And it also just so happens to be that it is one of the greatest disconnects between today's Christianity and the biblical teaching that we read about and we get from Scripture. It's on this subject of conduct. It's a major tension. And it is so because we've embraced a cultural ideology of therapeutic affirmation. Really simply, here's what it means. We aim to make one another feel good. We want to help one another by affirming one another to feel good. And the church has 
bought into this cultural ideology. Except there's a problem. Discipleship doesn't always feel good. Because baked into discipleship, baked into Christian life, are things that just aren't fun. Like imagine as a parent saying, I'm going to parent my child with no discipline. Yeah, that's laughable, right? How are you going to disciple apart from correction and discipline and repentance, exposing sin and weakness? And by the way, there's a reason we say this hurts me more than it hurts you. Because it hurts. It hurts. That's why you tell your kid that. You know it hurts. Discipline, having our sin exposed, our weaknesses, our pride shattered, none of that is fun. It's not comfortable. It, it's not affirming or therapeutic. And so we're kind of like an apple farmer who season after season dared not tend to the apple tree according to its fruit. And now, seasons later, we wonder why we have so few trees producing healthy apples. We're not tending to one another according to our conduct. Because conduct exposes us. I mean, it's hard to hide from it. Coaches have this great expression, tape don't lie. If you put it on the tape, if it's on the film, you did it, it don't lie. Your film tells you who you are. Have you ever seen like a criminal or someone maybe in like, even in a conversation with someone, but man, they've been arrested for something, they're in trouble for something, And they want you to know, that's not who I am. And so they say to the judge, that's not who I am. I'm not the type of person who would drink too much, not think right, and make this horrible decision that is caused. I want you to know, that's not who I really am. I'm not the kind of person who would do that thing. And yet, they are the very person who did that thing. See, working through that isn't fun. And in one way or another, we are all that person. We want to hide that stuff way back here. We don't want to talk about it. We don't want to work about it. We want to ignore it. We want to kind of go around it. And so we avoid tending to one another according to our conduct. And we've built whole, like, religious systems to match our ideology of therapeutic affirmation. Perhaps at the very foundational part, if you just think about it for just a moment, do you know that nowhere in Scripture is the primary evidence for your salvation a memory of a past event? It's not there. Rather, it is the ongoing work of the Spirit transforming your life, your fruit, your conduct. 
Think about the disconnect we read between church discipline in the epistles, the New Testament, versus the church discipline we see in our churches today. I, I remember one time I was at church and there was someone we had mentioned before the church, church discipline, and called the church to treat the man as an unbeliever, to call him to repentance every time you see him. And immediately after the service, someone came up, they were kind of new, and they walked up and they said, hey, I don't know what you guys are doing, but that guy will never be back here. That's not caring. Watch. In their ideology, that person's presence was the goal. Their presence, not their transformation, not the faithfulness to Scripture that modeled the exact thing that we did, but a therapeutic affirmation of how they thought they should go about it. See, tending to our conduct isn't therapeutic and it's not affirming. Our conduct is sinful and broken. And so before Christ, we cry out with that old Protestant saying that he is a great Savior. And we are great sinners. And our conduct exposes this. And so if we look at our conduct, we can't hide that. It tells on us. It exposes us. But we can try to ignore it, avoid it, overlook it. And so that's what so many of us have done. We have lowered the standards. We have overlooked error. We have marginalized pursuit, holiness, Christ-likeness, and just celebrated presence. As long as those around us are somewhat moral and present, we've deemed it good enough. And we just try to be affirming and maybe we'll rub off on each other along the way. This is prevalent in our understanding of discipleship. It's why so few of us are making disciples. It's because we are avoiding one another's conduct and the awkward and the tense conversations that come with peeling the layers back of our conduct. And yet the Bible makes much of our conduct. Did you hear me? The Bible makes much of our conduct. In fact, much of your New Testament, the epistles speak to Christian conduct. And hear me, and this is just as honest as I can say it to you. Those who would strip the pursuit of holiness, Christian conduct from the New Testament, those people that fill your Facebook profiles, your social media posts, who would strip conduct from the faith, they are false teachers. Beware of them. Yes, they may be your family. They may be your friends. They may sit in this very church with us. But we cannot strip faithful conduct in the pursuit of Christ's holiness from our faith. We just can't. And to do so is false teaching. It doesn't line up. And Peter is going to begin to take all of that on in our text this morning. 
So Peter chapter 1, verse 13. We're going to see as we read our big truth. All right, our big truth, as elect exiles, we conduct ourselves with fear. Two things I want you to listen for as we read. First, this word conduct, behavior, act out. It's used three times in four verses. You're going to see it in 15, 17, and 18. And fear is going to be the compelling affection to motivate our conduct. 1 Peter chapter 1, verse 13. Therefore, preparing your minds for action and being sober-minded, set your hope fully on the grace that will be brought to you at the revelation of Jesus Christ. As obedient children, do not be conformed to the passions of your former ignorance. But as he who called you is holy, you also be holy in all your conduct. Since it is written, you shall be holy, for I am holy. And if you call on him as father, who judges impartially according to each one's deeds, conduct yourselves with fear throughout the time of your exile, knowing that you were ransomed from your futile ways. By the way, that word ways, ESV, it's the exact same word that's been translated conduct. It's the, it's the third time we're seeing it. Knowing that you were ransomed from your futile ways, inherited from your forefathers, not with perishable things such as silver or gold, but with the precious blood of Christ, like that of a lamb without blemish or spot. He was foreknown before the foundation of the world, but was made manifest in the last times for the sake of you who through him are believers in God, who raised him from the dead and gave him glory so that your faith and hope are in God. As elect exiles, we conduct ourselves in fear, with fear. I want you to see that play out in a few big ideas that are just going to follow along and implications that we're going to see right here in the text. The first one, we are adopted into a living hope. Verse 14, Peter says, as obedient children. Peter frames the setting for our conduct through adoption. Now, he doesn't say the word adoption. He just acknowledges that we're children. This theme of adoption to picture the gospel is throughout the New Testament. You'll see it maybe most clearly in Romans 8. But it builds on this idea that you and I were born into the family of Adam. All of us, descendants of Adam. And in our family, sinful, broken, without hope. And yet God loved us so much that he sent his only begotten son, who would lay down his life to pay the penalty for our sin, that through faith, not by works of our own, but by faith, we might be adopted from the family of Adam into the family of God through the righteousness and work of Jesus. It is 
a beautiful adoption. It is a beautiful picture of the gospel. Redeemed, reconciled, made right from a broken family with no hope, whose end is death. To the family of God who has before it an eternity of life. In right standing before the creator. Adopted, not by merit, but in God's mercy. Remember, Peter says in verse 3, God has caused us to be born again to a living hope. It's in his great mercy. And so our conduct is framed by our childlike obedience. He's going to speak to our conduct in family terms. That's important for us to remember because we're not earning merit with a dictator. That's not how we approach the Father. Instead, we approach him actively loving. Now, understand, I'm not talking just affection. I'm talking biblical love. Committing ourselves. Death to self, life in Jesus. Actively loving our perfect Father. See, here's the point. We live in hope of our future grace as obedient children. Our hope in the Father sets our affection and our conduct. We look forward into the family of God in full, in which we are called and set apart for, in which we are adopted into. And it is the standard of that family that then we long for. See, we long to obey because he is our father. We belong to him. His righteousness is our righteousness. He is our hope, and in him we live. And so Peter goes on and says, not only are you adopted into a living hope, but We are adopted out of ignorance. Verse 14, do not be conformed to the passions of your former ignorance. See, before we lived in hope of a future grace in Jesus, we chased our ignorant passions. See, now, in Christ, we have been adopted. Peter says, elect, born again. Now, as children who have been enlightened and informed by the word, our former passions, they are exposed. And we ourselves proclaim that they are false through our faith in Jesus. See, the way we used to think in our ignorance has been revealed to be a lie that leads to death. The desires once interwoven into our thinking have been exposed as deadly lies, deadly illusions. We affirm this in our faith. And so Peter says, don't follow those former passions. You know and have proclaimed where that road leads. There is only one road that leads into salvation, to life, to meaning, to worth. You know where all those other roads lead. Don't go down those anymore. Be guided by the truth that has been revealed to you. 
Set your mind beyond the circumstances of this world. Look forward. You don't even believe in those roads anymore. Instead, set your hope fully on a future grace. And as you hear this, be careful because I'm tempted to do this. I I know you guys are way more spiritual than me and you would never do this, but I do this all the time. I want to think of really bad things, not the things that I struggle with now or the sin that's in my life. Like I want to think of things like, yeah, like sure, like not going to be a murderer anymore, not going down that road. By the way, confession, I've never murdered anyone. I know that came out as like if like there's a change. Nope, just going to let you know. To my knowledge, I have not, all right? If you have, there's grace in Jesus, and this is not my, it hadn't been me. Watch. Think about your heart. Think about your pursuit. Be careful not to overlook your passions, to find your identity in your children when you know that's not where your identity is. Find your fulfillment in your job, knowing that it's dust. To find value in your appearance, pride in your ability. You see what I'm saying? See, set your hope fully, fully on a future grace in Jesus. Consider when you will measure success. We talked about that last week. There's a broken illustration in that. It's not perfect, but I'll share it again. Many of you have heard it before. I just want you to think about this moment. There's this little town, and on the outskirts of town, as you drive out of it, there's two gas stations, and people drive through this little town all the time on their way to somewhere else, and right outside of town, there's this curve, and then there's this massive bridge that goes over a great ravine, and the night before the bridge had collapsed, the man drives his car into the gas station, the guy comes out, and he says, how can I help you? He says, man, I'm driving through town, I'm about out of gas, I need some gas to go further. He goes, where are you going? He said, man, I'm just going right out the road and I'm going to keep trucking. He's like, man, that bridge is out. I can't give you any gas. You can't go that way. And he goes, listen, all I need from you is some gas. The guy says, man, I can't do that. I'm sorry. Man, I, I care about you. I don't want to see you get hurt. And the guy gets mad. He slams stuff around. He gets back in his car and he drives across the street to the other gas station. And there's a guy at the gas station. He says, how can I help you? He says, man, I just need some gas. This guy over here, he, he wouldn't help me at all. And the guy says, man, I want to be compassionate to you. I want to be hospitable to you. What, what do you need? How much? He goes, you don't have to get out of the car. Let me get the gas for you. Fills up his car with gas, cleans his windshields, goes inside, gets him a bottle of water. He says, man, I want you to know I care about you. And the guy says, man, thanks. It's been a long time since someone showed me such hospitality. And he gets in his car, he drives down the road, goes around the curve off the bridge to his death. At that time, who showed more compassion? See, that tension of when we measure success pulls us into our conduct. 
It pulls us into the tension of one another's lives. Why? Because we have set our eyes forward to a kingdom that is beyond the circumstances of this world. We see the world different. Our mind is set for action based on a future grace. And so Peter says, don't fall back into chasing former passions. Our future hope should set your conduct. Peter is using all of this in this adoption terminology, and he's saying, that's not your family anymore. You belong to the family of God. Paul uses citizenship terminology. He says, you're not a citizen there anymore. Let let me read it to you from Philippians chapter 3. Just kind of let this sink in. Verse 18, this is Paul writing, and he says, For many of whom I have often told you, and now tell you even with tears, walk as enemies of the cross of Christ. Their end is destruction. Their God is their belly. And they glory in their shame. With minds set on earthly things. But our citizenship is in heaven. And from it we await a Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ, who will transform our lowly body to be like his glorious body by the power that enables him even to subject all things to himself. Therefore, my brothers, whom I love and long for, my joy and my crown, stand firm thus in the Lord. You hear it all right there, the future focus the temptation to turn your attention and set your mind on the things of world, and yet the reality that we are no longer citizens of this world, but instead we're aliens, we're outsiders, we belong to the kingdom of God, we are no longer ignorant of the destination and the end of those passions. We see things different, and therefore we live different. Stand firm in the Lord. And just... One more rabbit to chase on this. Consider the world is actively conforming to its its own desires. It's conforming to itself. To resist that is to live counter to the culture. In other words, if you set your conduct according to the future hope that is in Jesus, your conduct will be noticeably different and out of step with those that live around you in this world. You will be different. Parents, listen. Your kids will be different. I I dare to think if we were really discipling our kids, they would be made fun of a lot more than they are. They'd be outsiders in conversations throughout the day a lot more than they are. Those teenage years would be a lot harder on them than they are. Why? Because they'd see the world different. Because you see the world different. Because our church sees the world different. Why? Because we have a different value system. We have a different standard. And so Peter goes on, he says, we are called to Christ-like conduct. Verse 15, but as he who called you is holy, 
you also be holy in all your conduct, since it is written, you shall be holy, for I am holy. Now, we could spend months talking about holiness, and we're going to like kind of go through it in like five minutes, okay? Like, there is so much here when we talk about holiness, but within this kind of quick context, here's the part I want you to catch. As obedient children, we are called to the Father's standard. We're called to his standard. Holiness is his perfection that is his conduct. His perfection on display in all that he does, all that he is. So, Paul's go back to last week and remember we talked about a judicial righteousness, our justification, the way we look into our past and see salvation in which we are declared righteous before God. Declared righteous. But there is also a practical righteousness that is being worked in us. And in Jesus, we long for this sanctification, this work of God in our life, this grace in our life, transforming our very conduct, our very being into what we have been declared to be. At Tri-Cities, we say that a lot in this way. We are pursuing Christ's likeness. We are longing to be like Jesus. Here's what we're saying. We long for his holiness to be true of us. We long for his holiness. See, we want to be holy because our Father calls us to be holy. Because Jesus, our Savior, verse 8, the one whom we love is holy. See, and we know any other conduct is a lie of our former ignorance. See, this is an important rabbit. We're going to chase it for just a second. It is really important in our culture today for you and for me to acknowledge that the pursuit of Jesus' holiness is not legalism. It is faithful worship. Let me say it again. The pursuit of Jesus' holiness is not legalism. It is faithful worship. Legalism is thinking that your pursuit is somehow adding to your righteousness, that somehow in your pursuit you are adding to holiness. No, our holiness, our righteousness is in Jesus and in Jesus in full. But belonging to him, being in the family of God, we long to be what we have been declared to be. We know that is true. We know the old ways are ignorant. They're empty. And so we long to be like Jesus. See, there are so many who mask the passions of their former ignorance behind the excuse of avoiding legalism. Did you hear me? We mask, we mask the passions of our former ignorance behind the excuse of avoiding legalism. We'll deem any discipline or effort or conduct as legalism. 
And the reason is because some are more concerned with identifying with the standards of this world than with the standards of Jesus. Their cry of legalism is nothing more than an excuse to prioritize their love and their commitment for this world. The theories of this world, their therapeutic affirmation of one another over their love and commitment to Christ's likeness. See, if I love Jesus and Jesus' holiness, I want to be conformed to his holiness. Not because I think it adds to my righteousness. Not because I think I'm going to do it perfectly. I may fail at every step, but I know it's true. I know that's my family. And let me fail a thousand times pursuing what is true, pursuing my hope than being satisfied in my ignorance and in my passions that are empty. And so it's not even about your performance in this way, but it is the longing of your heart to be like Jesus because you know that is his standard. And so Peter builds on this and he reminds his leaders, we are accountable to our Father. Verse 17, if you call on him, as Father, who judges impartially according to each one's deeds. We will give an account of our conduct to the Father. While our judicial righteousness is in Jesus and secure, we know our Father judges impartially according to conduct. The Father will deal with us, every one of us, according to our conduct. For those of us who are not in the family of God, he will deal with us in his wrath. And for those of us who are in the family of God, he will deal with us in his discipline. And we know this. And we know he is impartial because he poured out the wrath of our sin on his only begotten son. And who are you to think he will not discipline, that his wrath would avoid you? See, listen, church. No one is comfortable in discipline, but the discipline of the Father is loving. It's part of being in the family of God. But to be outside the family of God, outside of faith in Jesus, is to take his wrath upon yourself. That is an incredible distinction as you think through this. And we know this to be true because we cry out and rightly call him father because we have been adopted into the family of God. And we know He is impartial. Verse 17, conduct yourselves then with fear throughout the time of your exile. We are adopted not just into a living hope, but a living fear. Now remember the contextual setting here. We're talking about our father. We're approaching as obedient children. My daughter knows my standard as her father. She knows there is accountability to that standard. And even for me, imperfect, 
broken, completely messed up, and very visible in my mistakes, in my errors, in my flaws, in my sin to my daughter, there is a reverence for me as her father. See, with our hope fully in our future grace in Jesus, healthy fear marks our effort, our conduct. Because our conduct is seen by the perfect Father who we belong to, who gives us life, who sustains us, who created us. Our Father is supreme. And yes, our love compels us. But our reverence, our fear of him compels us. Knowing that every act, every aspect of our behavior comes back before our Father. And so the authentic Jesus follower desires to offer his or her life as a living sacrifice, as an act of worship, not as a token of righteousness. You say, why the distinction? Last point, because we are redeemed by Jesus. All of this, verse 18, Peter says, knowing that you were ransomed from the futile ways, conduct, Inherited from your forefathers, not with perishable things such as silver or gold, but with the precious blood of Christ, like the lamb, like a lamb of God, or a lamb without blemish or spot. He was foreknown before the foundation of the world, but was made manifest in the last times. For the sake of you, who through him are believers in God, who raised him from the dead and gave him glory. So that your faith and hope are in God. You're going to see a negative, positive switch here really quick. We are ransomed. We are adopted concerning this salvation that Peter speaks. It did not come, here's the negative, from the futile or the empty conduct that was passed down, inherited, that is perishable with these offerings and sacrifices. No, instead, listen to the positive. We have been ransomed, adopted into the family of God, in which we cry out, Father, through the precious blood of Jesus. See, Peter's saying your family inheritance, it was empty conduct, and it led to death, but adopted into the family of God, joint heirs with Jesus, you inherit his holiness. You have been liberated from the empty law that was handed down to you that said somehow you are going to work your way into righteousness, that somehow you are going to work your way into holiness. No, Jesus is our holiness, joint heirs with him. It has been brought to us in him. And so set your hope fully on the future grace that is to be brought to you in Jesus. Long for his holiness. It's your hope. 
And if we proclaim it to be our living hope, do you not want to pursue it? Oh, we will fail a thousand times over. But the mark of Christ's work in us, in the true believer, will be our conduct. Not in our own merit, not in our own power, but the same power of God that saved us, working in us to transform us and change us and compel us into the holiness that is set before us as our very hope. Man, consider this salvation. I'm going to ask you to pray with me, and we're going to take a time to respond in the Lord's Supper As we do, I would remind you, our hope is in the precious blood of Jesus. Father, thank you so much for your word. Thank you for how it peels back the layers of our conduct. It wounds our pride. It exposes our sin. And leaves us standing in front of you, great sinners. But Father, it makes much of your son, Jesus. For as great as our sin Your love for us is greater. That you would send your son, our savior, to shed his blood and give his life that we might be ransomed, adopted into your family. And so Father, as we prepare to take the Lord's Supper, I ask that you turn our attention to him, that we remember, and that we celebrate the hope of our holiness and our righteousness, the hope of our salvation, that we celebrate your son, Jesus, in whose name we pray, amen.